Holy Father, our Father and God in heaven, Father, I am pleading with you that your Holy Spirit fill my mind and fill my heart. And Father, this church has invested much to gain a blessing from your word here today by bringing me here. So Father, I ask that you honor their sacrifice. May I be a blessing, not a curse for people. I ask that you fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that hearts will be touched by your love, and that we grow closer to you. And through these messages and through our practical decisions that we be ready for your son's soon return. And so, Father, we ask that you do something special here today. Use my broken self to perform a miracle today through your power. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most controversial doctrines that our church holds that is unique is that about the investigative judgment. There are some, many of our progressive brethren, that are very, very much against the investigative judgment. There are some that are afraid of the investigative judgment. In fact, I remember a few years ago, myself and our ministry director, Evangelist Taj Paklub, he was presenting on the sanctuary, and between the meetings, I was having lunch with a doctor, and he was sharing to me how the Adventist message is fearful to him that the investigative judgment is something that is scary, that is something that is fearful. And when I encounter these things about how prophecy is scary, how this message is, causes great fear, it caused me to really think and evaluate and start studying again. How can the investigative judgment be connected to the gospel? Because I believe it's not separate, because the investigative judgment is given by Jesus. So obviously, it has to be good news. In fact, I believe many people may be isolating certain passages like this from Great Congress, page 482, paragraph 1. Inspiration writes, Every man's work passes in review before God and is registered for faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Opposite each name in the books of heaven is entered with terrible exactness every wrong word, every selfish act, every unfulfilled duty, and every secret sin with every artful dissembly. Heaven sent warnings of reproofs neglected, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities, the influence exerted for good or for evil, with its far-reaching results, all are chronicled by the recording angel. How many of you think this statement is pretty scary, just by itself? It can be, can it? It's like we're in a virtual reality show, and all of heaven is watching. Not only our actions, but every thought that we have, Every motive we have is passed through this judgment. But I'm here to tell you that the judgment is not scary, that the judgment is good news. But there is a mechanism why there's, the judgment is so solemn. God is trying to emphasize that through the judgment to realize that we are nothing without God. He wants us to lay our pride to the dust. Now, in a judgment... When we're being judged by something, what do we need in order to be judged? There needs to be a criteria or a standard, isn't that correct? Students are judged by the test that they have, from the criteria of the right answer. In a court, we are judged by the criteria of that law, isn't that correct? So what is the criteria of this judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The Bible says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter... Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So the criteria of this judgment is what? The commandments of God. The Ten Commandments. Now what does the law do? The Ten Commandments. What is the function of the Ten Commandments? The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Bible says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law's function is to reveal to us our defects of character. You know, for Korean folk, we want perfect skin. Milky, white, perfect, smooth skin. And when I judge myself to the standards of Korean beauty, I see age spots, wrinkles, and everything, and I see imperfection. The law, the Ten Commandments, show the defects of our character. That is the purpose of the law. And what is the end result of sin as the law reveals the knowledge of sin? The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's pretty bad news. When we're judged by a standard of a law that reveals our imperfections, that bringeth forth death. Now, what is the result of the judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. So the end result of this judgment, of this law that reveals the knowledge of sin, that brings forth death, brings forth the wrath of God. Sounds like pretty bad news already. But wait on it. There's some good news. But for every condemnation, there's an opportunity for redemption. For every flood, there was an ark. For every, every Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a message for Lot and his family to escape. For every destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus gave Matthew 24 for all righteous people to escape the judgment. So for every condemnation, for every wrath, there's also redemption. And although the judgment reveals condemnation, there is redemption in the judgment. Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. The Bible says this, that for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the who? Ungodly. And who are the ungodly? Who receive the wrath of God. Why do we receive the wrath of God? Because we commit sin. And why do we commit sin? Because of the knowledge of the law. But Christ died for the ungodly. And what does Christ dying for the ungodly do? What happens because Christ died for the ungodly? Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The Bible says this, For God commanded his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, deserving death, deserving the wrath of God, ungodly, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, declared not guilty, we shall be saved from wrath through him because he died for the ungodly. So it frees us from the condemnation of the judgment. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So, in other words, the judgment reveals that without Jesus, we are nothing. 
The judgment reveals our true condition. And so when we know our true condition, we are in need of Savior. We need something above and beyond ourselves. The reason why many of us fall is because of pride. We like to figure these things out among ourselves. But when we reveal the law of righteousness, and we know that because the law shows us that we are weak, wretched, and poor, when we realize this, we can now come to Jesus and receive the declaration of not guilty. Now, what is the significance of Jesus dying for our sins? What did Jesus actually do? Isaiah 53, verse 5. The Bible says, but he was wounded for whose transgressions? Our transgressions, our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus took the penalty of condemnation on our behalf. You know, like I said yesterday, one of the things I hate is to be blamed for something that I did not do. Teachers get that a lot. We get blamed for a student's performance. And if a student is not paying attention, it's the teacher's fault. He's boring. I hate being blamed for something that I did not do. Well, you know what the difference between myself and God is? God is willing to take the blame for our sins even though it was not his fault. That's the type of God that we serve. And so as Jesus received the condemnation of guilty in our behalf, we must conclude that Jesus himself was investigated and judged. Because if he was to take our condemnation in this investigated judgment, so too we must conclude that he was also in this judgment. When was Jesus investigated and judged? Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 18, verse 28. The Bible says this, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves were not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but they that might eat at the Passover. So here Jesus was now being investigated and judged, committing crimes both against the church at that time for blasphemy, for asserting his divinity, and also condemned or investigated by the state, the government, for insurrection. Now, what was the conclusion of this judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. The Bible says, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. So the judge himself, Pilate himself, said, declared Jesus not guilty. But yet Jesus was condemned. Who condemned Jesus to die? Notice the Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 20. The Bible says, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the church condemned Jesus to die. You see, the Bible says that judgment begins with the house of God. So the investigative judgment begins with us in the church, those that profess God. And so the church condemned Jesus to die. And who else condemned Jesus to die? Notice the Bible says in John 19, 7, the Jew answered him, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So Jesus was accused of being a lawbreaker, a commandment breaker, deserving wrath in this judgment. 
So the church and the state combined to kill Jesus. Jesus was condemned to die in this judgment. Jesus received condemnation from the church and from the government. In the last days, you know who receives condemnation from a church and from the government? We that are faithful in the last days. Because church and state will merge to usher in the last great final deception in this world today. And because Jesus went through the persecution of church and state, so too as we see all these things going right before our eyes in these last days, rest assured, because Jesus paved the way and Jesus gained the victory, we could also make it. There's nothing to fear because Jesus has already paved the way. He was condemned in his judgment and he was victorious. Now, who also took part in condemning Jesus in this judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 20, verse 19. The Bible says, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. So the Gentiles, those that were non-believers, also condemned Jesus in the judgment. So you had the church, you had the government, and you had non-believers. Believers, non-believers, and the government all condemned Jesus to die in this judgment. And, but what other condemnation did Jesus receive in the judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 6. The Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all. So know this. Jesus received the wrath of the church. Jesus received the wrath of the government. Jesus received the wrath of Satan. And Jesus received the wrath of God. That's pretty extraordinary. Four times quadruple wrath. He did this because he loved you and I. And he loves you and I. So what happened when Jesus took responsibility for our sins? You know, I'm more convinced. You know, we have an argument right now in the church about ordination, about headship. That men should be the head and women should be submissive and everything like that. I think this whole debate could be solved by one thing, by one verse. In Ephesians 5.25, we don't have to turn there. The Bible says, husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You see, in order for men to be qualified to be head of the household or head of the church, Men have to declare that no matter what the woman does and no matter what everyone else does, it's the man's fault. It's my fault. It's not the woman's fault. It's not the wife's fault. It's not the children's fault. It's my fault. You know why? Because Jesus said it's my fault, even though it was not my fault. And when we model the spirit of Jesus and Jesus took responsibility for our imperfections and for our sins and said it's my fault, even though it's not my fault, and if men do the same, this whole division in the church would be swept away. This is the theory that I have. And because Jesus took the responsibility for our sins, notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 8. The Bible says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So Jesus said, I will make the sins of humanity past present, future, my fault. Remember Adam in the garden? If you look at Genesis chapter 3, you know, we popularly think that Adam blamed Eve for causing him to eat the fruit. But if you look at the text carefully, the Bible says, it was you, God, that gave me the woman that caused me to sin. 
Adam blamed God. Was it God's fault? No. But God said, I will make it my fault. I will take responsibility for your actions, even though it's not my fault. Why do you do that? First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Bible says, For Christ also hath once suffered for us the just and the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He died for the sinner, you and I, the just and the unjust. And when he was dying, his dying prayer, as he received the sentence for our sins, what was his dying prayer? Notice what the Bible says in Luke 23, verse 34. The Bible says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And so even when Jesus' dying breath, he said, Father, forgive them. You know, that prayer is powerful. Because can you imagine, as Jesus dying the cross, you had pagan Romans crucifying him. You had the entire church against him saying, crucify him, crucify him. You had the priests and the Pharisees so bitterly against him, and that prayer seemed hopeless. But Jesus prayed hope against hope in the midst of hopelessness, prayer of hope, this prayer of faith, because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And notice how this prayer was answered. Notice the Bible says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The Bible says, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multitude in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the people that condemned Jesus, some of the people that condemned Jesus to die, became converted with Jesus' dying prayer. Do you feel hopeless today, brothers and sisters? Do you feel like you're bearing a cross where everything is dark? Know this. Just like it appeared hopeless when Jesus was dying, God answers prayers. We must believe the word of God because the word of God comes true. Now, who else received the benefits of this judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 13, verses 47 to 48. We established that the Gentiles also condemned Jesus to die by crucifying Jesus on the cross. But notice what happened to the Gentiles after Jesus died and was resurrected. The Bible says in Acts 13, 47, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So the same people that killed Jesus physically were the same people who were now being saved. You see, when the Gentiles who helped crucify Jesus unwittingly took part in the process of killing Jesus, they were also, without knowing it, taking part in the process of their salvation, and when the gospel message will reach them, many will be saved. What Satan meant for evil, God turned it for good. And although Jesus abused and mocked and unjustly killed for our sins, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for their salvation. Thus, we have the assurance that Jesus took the wrath and penalty of the judgment in our behalf if we accept pardon from him. So Jesus was investigated. He was judged, and he was condemned. Now, in a judgment, we have to face a judge. I remember I had to go to a judge for a Traffic ticket, $500 ticket. Look, 
police officer thought that I passed the school bus when it was another car. So I went to the judge and pleaded my case and told my story, and I got community service. I was happy. We have to determine who the judge is in this judgment. Who is the judge that has investigated us since 1844? Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. The Bible says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So the Bible says, who's the judge? Jesus. And because Jesus judged, it is the gospel. And what is the gospel? Good news. So this investigative judgment must be good news. So bear this. Although the judgment is one of condemnation, judgment is also one of redemption because if we know who the judge is, that gives us hope. Because the judge is Jesus and Jesus judging is the good news even though God is judging the secrets of men. So because Jesus is the judge, what is Jesus doing right now? Notice what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. The Bible says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus is seeking to save all of us and declare us not guilty and to intercede and advocate in our behalf. This judgment doesn't appear so scary anymore. You see, today, in today's political climate, judges are being elected of how much tough they are in crime to give them the supreme, most terrible sentence of long life in prison. But Jesus is designed to declare the guilty not guilty. That is the judge that we have. And what does this judge seek to do? The Bible says in Isaiah 33, verse 22, For the Lord is our judge. For the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So in this investigative judgment since 1844, Jesus is seeking to save us from condemnation, not to declare us guilty. We talk about and focus about the Sunday law and the seven last plagues, and we're so fearful of that. But if Jesus is trying to declare us not guilty, we should not be afraid of the wrath of God. Because Jesus has given us a way out of condemnation. And so being offered to us during this judgment, what is the message? Notice what the Bible says in Luke 24, verse 46 to 47. What is the good news? What is the gospel of this judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Luke 24, verse 46 to 47. This is from the ESV. The Bible says, and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Oftentimes we focus on the law in our church. We focus on the Sabbath, which is necessary. We can't downplay the law. But one thing that I believe that we as a church have a problem with since 1888, when this message was first presented, is that we do not blend the law with mercy. When we see that Jesus is seeking to forgive us in this judgment, the law doesn't seem so scary anymore. The judgment doesn't appear to be so apprehensive anymore. And so the message is that Jesus is seeking to forgive us, and this message should be declared to all the nations. 
This is part of the three angels' messages. We'd like to focus on, in the three angels' messages, worship not the beast in his image, for you'll receive the wrath of God. But the missing component is that God is seeking to forgive and forget our sins. So the question is, how are we forgiven? Notice. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 or 6, in summary, we have to seek the Lord where he will be found. And where is God right now? He is in the sanctuary, interceding on our behalf. Call upon him while he is near. Jesus is seeking to be near to our hearts. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, he's knocking on the doors of our hearts. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So Jesus is near, and Jesus is in the sanctuary, so we could call upon him. As we let Jesus in, the Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, and Isaiah 55, verse 7, confess and forsake our sins. When we realize that we don't want to do this sin anymore, we let go and we ask God to take it away and we confess it. That's step two. Then step three, according to Proverbs 28, 13, Isaiah 55, verse 7, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9, the Bible says that we receive mercy and receive pardon. In other words, Jesus declares us not guilty, as though that we have never sinned. That's hard to believe. Because it's so counterintuitive to our culture, so counterintuitive to our society, it's so counterintuitive to our government. And then, step four. Believe, faith, that Jesus justifies, forgives, and covers the sins of the ungodly and receives his righteousness. Not only does he forgives us, but he imputes upon us or he gives us the declaration of the perfect life of Jesus upon our lives. So the record is no longer Peter K. Chung, sinner. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous, in his judgment. But there's something that happens when we receive forgiveness. There's a demonstration that we exhibit. There's a fruit when we accept forgiveness from God. Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. The Bible says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So in other words, the fruit of forgiveness is obedience. Remember Abraham? Wasn't Abraham a liar? Didn't Abraham have weak faith with the Hagar situation? The Bible says that Abraham was righteous according to Romans chapter 4 and that it was imputed to him righteousness and that he was righteous. What changed? I believe, according to Romans chapter 4, that Abraham confessed his sin. He also demonstrated receiving forgiveness. How? Remember, God demonstrated with a test. Remember when God told Abraham to take Isaac to that mountain of Moriah to sacrifice him? What did Abraham do? He obeyed. So that obedience was a demonstration of him receiving forgiveness. 
And so when we accept Jesus' justification, when we accept forgiveness of sins, that love awakeneth love. And because we're so grateful that Jesus declared us not guilty, we see the commandments of God not as a yoke. We don't see the commandments of God as a way to earn our way to salvation. We see the commandments of God as God giving us life and life more abundantly. And therefore we love him and follow him. And so notice what inspiration says, faith and works, page 100, paragraph 1. But while God can be just and yet justified, a sinner through the merits of Christ, no man could cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith by the works of love and purifies the soul. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that faith worketh by love. And the Bible says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Listen, when you love something, you do some crazy things. Can you imagine if the 49ers are in the Super Bowl again? You know how many people will wait in line in the cold Bay Area weather for those tickets? Yes? That's love for your team. You know those Green Bay Packer fans, you know, in 10 below zero weather with their shirts off? I call that persecution. <laughs> they really love their team. That's human love, mind you. But when we have divine love, how much more can God do for us? So what is God seeking to do right now in this judgment? The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us usward, not willing that how many should perish? Any should perish. How much is any? Everybody. The Muslim. The Buddhist. The alt-right Republican. The ultra-liberal Democrat. The Buddhist. The Mormon. The LGBT. God is willing not that any should perish, but that how many should come to repentance? All should come to repentance. What brings forth repentance? Notice the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. The Bible says, O despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the what of God brings us to repentance? Goodness of God. What is the goodness of God? Notice what the Bible says in Psalms 86, verse 5. The Bible says in Psalms 86, verse 5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. So the goodness of God is God seeking to forgive and to be merciful towards us. And that brings us into you know why Jesus has not come yet? It's because Jesus will wait for the crisis, the Sunday law, and the seven last plagues if there's just one person willing to change his mind for him. Jesus does math different than us. Bear with me now. You see here in the, you remember the parable of the lost sheep? Remember, Jesus went and ran for that one sheep that was lost. Isn't that correct? That leads me to conclude if there's one person willing to change his mind before the Sunday law and before the seven last plagues and before the wrath of God, God is willing to hold the winds just for that one person. So he has an opportunity to fully change his mind. You see, when the Sunday law happens and when the crisis happens and when persecution happens, that is when people have now solidified their final decision and nothing will change their mind. 
We know this because when the seven last plagues happen, which is the wrath of God in Revelation 16, those that receive the seven last plagues, those are they that will repent not of their sins. They don't repent because they made their final decision. We also see this in Revelation chapter 20 when the city of God has come down after the millennium and you see the unrighteous resurrect in the second resurrection. What do they do? They're unrepentant. They seek to storm the city. You see, Jesus will come when everyone has made on this earth a demonstration of a final decision, either be sealed by the seal of God or given the mark of the mark of the beast. And what makes the mark of the beast the mark of the beast is not Sunday worship per se. If you read Revelation 13 carefully, the mark of the beast is those that are forced to worship the beast by the threat of death. What makes the mark of the beast the mark of the beast is the threatened or the forced worship of the beast. It's not Sunday worship. It's forced Sunday worship. It's sort of like ISIS. ISIS forces against the will to convert to Islam. And we think it's terrible. And it is terrible. It is the same concept. And because of that, what God hates the most is causing people to be forced against their will. So Jesus, in this time, in these last days, is waiting for us to make final decisions. And if there's this one person willing to change their mind, he will hold the winds of judgment even for that one person. Because our God is a singular God. Every soul in this universe has a peace in God's heart that no one else can fill. And therefore, he waits. And what is forgiveness connected to? Notice what the Bible says in Psalms 130, verse 3 and 4. The Bible says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. So the fear of God is connected to forgiveness. Why is that significant? Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7. The Bible says, And I saw another angel flying the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. And what is fearing God connected to? Forgiveness. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And what is that judgment? Why is the judgment good news? Because Jesus is our judge. And Jesus is seeking to declare us not guilty. And worship him that made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Listen, brothers and sisters, the investigative judgment in 1844 is the everlasting gospel that we should preach to all the world. Because Jesus is trying to tell the world, my child, I want to seek to declare that you are not guilty. I'm seeking to forgive, not only to forgive, but to forget your sins. As the records of our sins have been blotted out in the sanctuary. Now, who is condemned in this judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 24 and 25. These are those that are condemned in the judgment. These are those that receive the condemnation of the wrath of God. The Bible says this, when Pilate saw he could prevail nothing, but that rather atonement was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of, of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. In other words, those that say, I want to take responsibility for my own sins, 
I take responsibility for my actions. I'll take what's coming to me, those that receive the wrath of God. They did not come to God for a plea agreement. They did not adhere to God's conditions of probation, and therefore they are declared guilty because they willingly accepted the punishment by declaring that we don't need Jesus, I'll accept the punishment myself. And so, what is being judged in this judgment? Great Conference, page 482. As the books of record are open in the judgment, the lives of all who have believed on Jesus comes in review before God. All who have truly repented of sin and by faith claimed the blood of Christ as their atoning sacrifice have had pardon entered against their names in the books of heaven as they have become partakers of the righteousness of Christ and their characters are found to be in harmony with the law of God. Their sins will be blotted out and they themselves will be accounted worthy of eternal life. So with this investigative judgment right now, you know what we're being judged by? Whether we ask God for forgiveness. Whether we've repented. You see, all the thoughts, deeds, and actions, all of that, it does not matter if we repented because all the bad things that we did are now blotted out because we got repentance. Our record is clean. So the judgment is whether or not we confess our sins, whether or not we're truly repentant. That's the essence of the judgment. Whether we accept Jesus in our heart is that simple, brothers and sisters. It's not that complicated. You see, the gospel and the Adventist message is one and the same. So those who refuse to confess and repent their sins will take responsibility for their sins and thus condemn them to judgment. But what is Jesus seeking to do as I bring some final points? Isaiah 43, verse 25. This is what Jesus is seeking to do. I, even I, am he that blotted out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy We hold grudges. We remember all the bad things that happened in our lives. But the God that knows everything is seeking to forget all the bad things we did to him. This is the God who we serve. This is the God that loves us. This is the God that raised up the remnant church to declare this special message in these last days. This message of what's called justification by faith. And so because of Jesus' love for us, what can we do for our judgment? Notice what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. It's not on the screen. I'm going to read to you from the pulpit. The Bible says, Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. As Jesus took responsibility to be condemned for our sins, so are we because we could stand boldness in that day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. For we love him, because he first loved us. Thus, the purpose of the judgment is to reveal to us how hopeless we are in of ourselves, but then lead us to the blood of Jesus so we can be justified and forgiven of our sins if we believe God at his word. Thus the judgment determines whether or not we accepted the justifying blood of Jesus and repented 
or turned away from our sins because the goodness of God draws us to accept his atoning blood. The judgment is going on. And the question is, have you gone to the judge to ask for mercy and pardon? He's freely to give. We don't have to be so afraid of this. And oftentimes, the reason why we're afraid of God, unfortunately, is because how we relate to one another. Perhaps you had a parent that portrayed themselves very stern and very angry and very all law and no grace. And perhaps that has affected your view of God. We have to unlearn that, brothers and sisters. Because God is freely to forgive. And when he freely forgives us, that love awakeneth love, and therefore we now obey him. How do we get ready for Jesus to come? Do we truly believe that Jesus forgives our sins? That's when we're ready for Jesus to come. When we believe and accept that Jesus forgives our sins and the cleanses of all unrighteousness, receives his righteousness, and his righteousness not only declares an outward perfection, but works in us an inward change of heart that we obey him till we're sealed. Faith and Works, page 99, paragraph 3. As the sinner looks to the law, his guilt is made plain to him and pressed home to his conscience, and he is condemned. His only comfort and hope is found looking at the cross of Calvary. As he ventures upon the promises, taking God at his word, do we take God at his word? Relief and peace come to his soul. He cries, Lord, thou hast promised to save all who have come unto thee in the name of thy son. I am a lost, helpless, hopeless soul. Lord, save or I perish. His faith lays upon on Christ and he is justified or declared not guilty before God. This is the message, brothers and sisters. This is the message, the missing ingredient to declare that message of the three angels of his power. But we have to believe that promise first. Do you believe that Jesus forgives you? And when we believe and when we accept, this church will be revived. There'll be a change. In this world where people are so conformed to standards, beauty standards, political standards, social standards, they're so held in bondage to all these standards of the world when we show that there is a God that's freely to forgive and to forget and to give mercy, this church will be filled with new people trying to be free from the abuse of the world. We have a special message, brothers and sisters, but we must accept it ourselves. Our Father and God in heaven. Father, we thank you that this judgment justifies. Father, we thank you that the judge is Jesus that's seeking to declare us not guilty. And Father, as I make this appeal, I ask that you touch the minds and hearts of the people. And brothers and sisters, as their heads are bowed and eyes are closed, is there someone here today saying, Father, today, Lord, help me to believe that you forgive my sin. Lord, I am weak. I'm held in the bondage of guilt. I have things in my past that I'm ashamed of, but today I have learned that you're seeking to forget 
and forgive my sins. Lord, I want to be free from this condemnation. I want to be freed from this self-abusive mentality that I am not good enough today, Father. I want to accept your love. I want to accept your grace. And I want to accept your pardon here today and healing. If that's your desire, I simply ask that you raise your hands if that's your desire. And brothers and sisters, those that raise their hands, I want to do something special here today. I want to have a special prayer for you. And for those that raise their hands, I, want you, I would like to ask you to come forward here to the altar so we can have a special prayer, if that's your desire. Today could be a new day. Today we could be free from the bondage of condemnation, of guilt, of being not good enough, of being ashamed of the past. Today we could be a new beginning. Today, we can have a greater understanding of God's love to have be secure in this judgment hour that although we're defective, feeble, naked, wretched, poor, blind, and naked, Jesus seeks to cover us from our imperfections. Jesus seeks to heal us from our wounds because by his stripes, we are healed. Holy Father, our Father and God in heaven. Father, I stand with these precious brothers and sisters in this appeal. For this message is for me as much as it's for the congregation. And so, Father, today, we are weak and feeble. We are beaten by the enemy. This world is difficult to live in. But today, we have the assurance of freedom that Jesus judges righteously, full of pardon, full of mercy. And so, Father, those that have come forward here today, I ask a special blessing be upon them. May you heal their hearts and heal their minds. May they realize that they, among, in the midst of their defects, in the midst of their indiscretions, in the midst of all the shame that they have, that they could be secure by your love because your love covers a multitude of sins. And so today, we receive today the clothing of your righteousness here today. We receive forgiveness and pardon, pardon that you freely offer Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be condemned in our behalf in this judgment hour. And so, Father, today, I ask that these people that have come forward to be freed from the bondage of guilt, to be freed from the hurt and the pain of the past, that they have a new beginning today, that they take the first step to the assurance that you love them and you will save them. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace and we ask that we experience a greater degree of your love so that we could share it to a broken and dying world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org